as I know, Schubert never referred to his string quartet in D minor as his Death and the Maiden Quartet. But the nickname is almost as old as the work itself, and for once, it's utterly appropriate. In terms of simple fact, the quartet not only quotes, but makes extensive references and allusions to Schubert's song Der Tod und das Mädchen, Death and the Maiden. But there's more to it than that. The presence of death, its horror, its pathos and its fascination seems to haunt the music. of Schubert's D minor quartet is a remarkable set of variations, full of ideas from the song Death and the Maiden. The theme, the basis of these variations, derives not from the singer's line, but from the piano's short introduction. Transcribed for string quartet and drawn out melodically and harmonically as only Schubert could, it becomes a tune that lodges in the memory, somewhere between a slow dance and an austere funereal chant. It's frequently stated as fact that Schubert was writing under the shadow of death when he composed this quartet in March 1824. Well, he had been battling with serious ill health for some time, the mysterious but devastating sickness that was to kill him four years later. And at the end of that march, Schubert wrote a long and heartfelt letter to his friend Leopold Kuppelweiser. Think of a man whose health will never be right again and who in sheer despair over this always makes things worse instead of better. Think of a man whose brightest hopes have come to nothing, for whom love and friendship have nothing to offer but at the best pain, whose passion for beauty, at least the sort that inspires, threatens to forsake him. I ask you, isn't he a miserable, unhappy being? My peace is gone, my heart is sore, I shall find it never, never more. The sheer depth of feeling is obvious, something pointed out by one of our listeners, Nader Marvan, who suggested on the Discovering Music website that we take a look at this great work. Schubert's letter seems pretty conclusive. Here, surely, 
is a composer close to giving up on life altogether. But then the mood of the letter changes. So far as songs are concerned, Schubert continues, I've not done much that's new. But I have tried my hand at several instrumental things. I wrote two quartets and an octet, and I intend to write another quartet, and generally speaking, pave my way to grand symphony. You must admit that does present a rather different sort of picture. Schubert may have been seriously worried about his health and keenly disappointed by his failure as an opera composer. He mentions that ruefully to Kupelweiser. But his response is to start thinking in another direction. Symphonic music, grand symphonic music. This doesn't sound like a man who's yearning for an early grave. And that more positive remark helps explain another crucial aspect of the D minor quartet, the second of the two quartets Schubert mentions in that letter to Kupelweiser. It may be sombre, full of dark sayings, but it's also splendidly confident and masterly in the way it handles large-scale symphonic logic. <laughs> fascination with a song about death requires some explanation, but I'm going to leave that till a bit later, when we explore some extensive quotations from the song Death and the Maiden. For the moment, let's look at the music we've just heard, the very beginning of the quartet, and see if we can identify what makes it such a resounding success from a symphonic point of view. We've only to compare it with the beginning of the other string quartet Schubert wrote at the beginning of 1824 to see how far he'd come in this direction. The opening of the earlier A minor quartet is one of the loveliest things in all Schubert's instrumental music. wonderful beginning. But how do you develop a theme like that? Play it louder? Change the accompaniment? Put it in a different key? Doing anything would surely be like rearranging the petals on a perfect orchid. And compared to that, the opening of the D minor quartet could hardly be more different. There's no captivating long tune there, or even a short one, come to that. Instead, there are tiny scraps of ideas, all very simple, but full of potential energy. First of all, there's that powerful opening sound, with violins and viola all playing two notes at once. 
What makes it so powerful is that the note is D, and all four instruments have a D string. If you don't touch the string with your finger when you bow it, the sound is particularly rich and resonant. Then comes that sharply distinctive triplet figure. Cello and first violin continue playing just the note D, which fights against a tense counterpoint, a four-note descending figure from the second violin and viola. And notice those highly charged silences between the phrases. Somehow they seem even more expressive than the notes themselves. All the time, the silences between the notes are telling, heightening the sense of expectancy. What will happen next? There's a new figure there that seems a little more expansive, melodically speaking, but it too is made up of only a very few simple elements. For one thing, there's the rhythm, which is actually a slowed-down version of the triplet figure from the beginning. So Schubert has been keeping his material as simple and economical as possible. It sounds positively clipped at times, and with those pregnant silences, it creates an immense tension. At last, Schubert releases the catch, and the music flies forward. by a string quartet, we could certainly call this a symphony. Schubert's introduction has surreptitiously presented almost all the ideas that follow, just like one of those action-packed Hollywood movie trailers. To show you what I mean, here's the first violin at the opening of that section. That's a tipped-up version of an interval we've heard in the introduction, a falling third. While viola and cello present a figure that sounds like an accompaniment, but which also compresses and develops the triplets we heard at the very beginning. 
From tiny seeds grow huge, sweeping paragraphs. That's one of the hallmarks of symphonic writing. Think of possibly the most famous symphonic beginning of all, Beethoven's Fifth. Everything seems to spring from the energy in four unmistakable opening notes. I don't know whether Schubert had that example specifically in mind, but if he did, he certainly showed that he knew how to live up to it in the first movement of his Death and the Maiden Quartet. is sometimes described as a song symphonist. What writers mean by this may vary. It could simply be that Schubert was adept at drawing song-like themes into his symphonic works. But it could also mean that the composer's songs can shed a different kind of light, can help us when it comes to interpreting the emotions expressed. Schubert's friends, who heard him sing and play his own songs at their musical evenings, would have recognised these references and allusions and made use of them in interpreting the music. In a sense, if we know the songs, we too can enter Schubert's circle of friends and read those signs. Here, it's the song Death and the Maiden that can throw light, or perhaps I should say cast shadows, over musical events, thus pointing to possible meanings. familiar with the Death and the Maiden Quartet, you'll have recognised that opening from the quartet's second movement. It's almost identical. But before we get to that, see how the shadows cast by Schubert's song fall strongly across the very opening of the quartet, too. As we've found, that's underpinned, somewhat agonisingly, by a held note, a D, on the first violin and the cello. <laughs> and they continue to hold that note for the next forceful statement of that motif. I think there's a reason for that, and it's found in the second half of the song Death and the Maiden. The song itself was clearly meant to be sung by one singer, but Schubert requires him or her to act two parts, the young girl terrified of death and the reaper himself, not quite so grim as he initially appears, but a possible bringer of peace. Give me your hand, beautiful, tender girl. I am a friend. I haven't come to punish. 
Death sings these words almost entirely to one repeated note, a D, the very same note held during the quartet's opening. It's very effective, but the idea wasn't Schubert's. It's a kind of style sometimes described as oracle speech, where an oracle or similar supernatural person delivers some important message to the living. There's a particularly memorable example of this in Mozart's opera Don Giovanni, where the voice of the murdered commendatore speaks from beyond the grave through the mouth of his statue. Could it be that the repeated Ds at the beginning of the quartet are an echo of the repeated note pronouncement of death in the song? Not convinced? Well, what if I tell you that the other key ingredient there, the triplet rhythm, comes from the song too? Though again, the illusion is subtle. When the maiden sings her first words in the song, Pass me by, oh pass me by, you dreadful skeleton, she does so above an agitated figure in the piano. Notice that piano figure, three short notes leading to a long note. That's our rhythmic motive from the beginning of the quartet. And there are other places in this first movement where you can hear the song's deathly echoes, most startlingly of all at the climax. just the sound of that sudden low D right down on the cello's lowest string that's so arresting. To get there, the cello has to plunge downward across two octaves. And that's another subtle but dramatic reference to the song Death and the Maiden. We've already heard allusions to Death's repeated note oracle speech, but at the end of the song, Death's vocal line plunges downwards to a low D at the words, You shall sleep softly in my arms. Realising that not every singer could get down to that low D, Schubert offered the alternative of a high D, but I think it's pretty clear which version he preferred.
hasten to sleep within these fond arms. And now keep that sepulchral low D in your head as we hear the end of the quartet's first movement. Once it's been struck, the instruments try harder and harder to break away from it, but each time they're dragged back unremittingly. The second movement of Schubert's quartet, Death and the Maiden, consists of a theme and variations. This time, the link to the song after which it was nicknamed is more direct. Here's the song's sombre introduction. And there's another important link, this time with the quartet's first movement. Remember that tiny figure from the opening few bars? Three notes outlining an important interval, a third, which now forms the outline of the slow movement theme. First, we hear it rising. Then falling. And remember, this melody came directly from Schubert's song, a sign of how deeply the song's influences run across the whole quartet.
At the end of the theme, Schubert springs one of his wonderful harmonic surprises, something that's not in the piano introduction to the song. The harmony suddenly turns from minor key darkness to major key light and warmth. But that only serves to make the return to the minor at the beginning of the first variation seem darker still. It's quite important that Schubert emphasizes the minor key in that way, because by this point in the quartet, we might be in danger of overdosing on minor key darkness. It's very unusual in a quartet from this era for a minor key slow movement to follow a minor key first movement. In fact, all four movements of this quartet are in the minor, and it prevails to the very last chord. To find another quartet so saturated in minor key darkness, you have to turn to late Shostakovich, another composer who was much possessed by death. But that brings me back to the question I asked earlier. Why is Schubert so apparently preoccupied with death in this quartet? As we've seen, the idea that it's simply a reflection of his allegedly pessimistic mood at the time won't do. Well, there's another possible reason. Schubert was very much caught up in the ideas of the German Romantic movement in the early 19th century, as were many of his friends. For the young German Romantics, death was an equivocal figure, horrifying, yes, but also fascinating, even alluring. Important writers like Herder and Lessing had challenged the old Christian idea of death as the punishment for sin. Might it not also be a merciful release? In his hugely influential novel, The Sufferings of Young Werther, the great Goethe had portrayed a man driven to suicide by disappointment in life and a growing feeling of alienation from the world around him. It all became rather fashionable. Young men affected Werther's distinctive blue coat and yellow breeches, and more seriously, there was a wave of suicides attributed to the novel's deleterious effect. By an extraordinary coincidence, Goethe published the final edition of The Sufferings of Young Werther in 1824, the same year Schubert wrote his Death and the Maiden Quartet. So if this music does contain more than a hint of fascination with death, it's picking up on ideas which were very much in the air. But death wasn't just a way out. There was also something erotically alluring about it, an idea which was to have an enormous appeal later to Wagner in his opera Tristan and Isolde, and which also fascinated the pioneering psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud. Don't forget that the song Death and the Maiden isn't simply a sermon on death as friend, it's also a love duet. 
The fact that it's a beautiful young virgin who symbolizes life, so full of highly charged erotic potential, makes that all the clearer. And that dramatic element is something Schubert brings out in these variations from the D minor quartet. In the opening variation, the first violin soars above the theme like a super-agile ballerina, upward surges followed by languishing falls. In the second half of the variation, the violin writing becomes more extreme. Could this be the voice of the maiden struggling and protesting as death tightens his grip? The soft, cajoling tenor voice of the cello takes over, death in seductive vein perhaps, though the violin writing above it is still nervous, agitated, the maiden isn't convinced yet. In variation three, the contrast between the voices of death and the maiden becomes marked. Stern rhythms with lots of repeated notes proclaim death, followed by high pleading lyricism from the maiden. time in this movement, Schubert ends a variation in the minor, darkness to the end. But as we enter variation four, the mode becomes major, the first violin's ballerina style sweetly melodic. This has to be the voice of that tender, beautiful maiden. She's soon silenced as the final variation 
begins its grim, emphatically minor key crescendo. With a hint of demonic laughter from the cello there, death seems to have triumphed in this remarkable symphonic poem. But don't forget that at the end of the song, Death and the Maiden, there's that striking change of character. Death is no grisly victor, but the merciful bringer of peace. And the ending of this second movement of the Death and the Maiden Quartet reflects that too. Minor, finally and irrevocably, becomes major. Agitation is stilled, and the final sound is a warm, major-key sigh of release. The idea of using his song, Death and the Maiden, as the basis for these dramatic variations was a risky one for Schubert. They might so easily have ended up sticking out, a tone poem in the midst of an abstract symphonic work. But Schubert was wise to that. By borrowing fragments of the song throughout his quartet, he created a tight binding, with everything held solidly in place. The third movement is a scherzo and trio, livelier and shorter than the variations, but still closely related to them. Remember that rising third idea from the variation theme? Transpose that a little, and you get an outline for the scherzo's main theme. And in the bass, 
There's a hint of those descending scales we heard so much of at the start of the quartet. Put them together, and you have this stern dance music. a marked contrast, which may set us thinking in terms of maidens and death yet again, but this sweeter major key melody is also based on that interval of a third. And in the background, the second violin reminds us gently of the scherzo's abrasive dotted rhythm. So despite the contrast, there's also a fundamental unity here. I'm tempted to say togetherness. Death and the sweetly erotic image of the maiden are extremes, but they're also essentially related. Now that really would have appealed to Freud. It's one of those moments that reminds us how deeply 20th century Freudian ideas were rooted in 19th century German romanticism. Now comes the finale. This could so easily have been an anticlimax. Instead of which, Schubert lets loose one of his most gripping ideas, a darkly obsessive, fast-paced dance theme that seems to leap unstoppably from the relentless dotted rhythms of the scherzo before it. The rhythmic pattern suggests the Italian folk dance called the Tarantella, a wild, desperate dance that was supposed to diffuse the deadly poison of the tarantula. I wonder how often it worked. Schubert must have had that in mind. And once again, it brings us back to the central image of life's struggle with death. image of life's struggle with death, I said, and that's certainly a tempting way to read this Death and the Maiden Quartet. What's even more tempting is to try and identify a victor in that struggle. There are times in this finale when Schubert seems to suggest an overturning of deathly influences once and for all. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Did you spot that rather familiar musical full stop there? How different that feels from the first time we heard it some 40 minutes ago. But to my mind, Schubert wasn't thinking of anything as crude as a victory of life over death, however exhilarating and, well, full of life this finale is. Instead, I think this is the Schubert we met in the letter we heard earlier. He's a man plagued by morbid thoughts, admittedly, but he's also thrilled at the discovery of his own abilities to write truly symphonic music. The invention never flags. The momentum is irrepressible. If Schubert was still thinking in terms of that path to grand symphony, he must have been more than pleased with the results in this quartet. The breathtaking, daring mastery of the great C major symphony, begun the following year, is only just around the corner. So there's another kind of triumph in the closing moments of this quartet. Yes, the dark minor mode holds sway to the end, but there's also that exhilaration Schubert, the young symphonist who dares to set himself up as the heir to the mighty Beethoven, is within sight of his goal. Mm -hmm. 